Well, welcome to this week's episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Blake Melnick, and this is the next installment in our series, The Many Faces of Innovation, called Entrainment and the Power of Sound, with my guest, Tom Powers. Tom, welcome to the show. I'm really jazzed about this interview. I loved our conversation during the pre-call, and I think our audience is really going to dig this. And I'd like to start, as I always do with my interviews, by giving our audience a little bit of background about our guests. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been doing in your career, and then we can move directly into talking about the research that you've been doing around sound and the impact that this will have potentially on the music industry, but also on many other industries as well. Sure thing. Well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. A little bit about myself. I... Graduated college in 1991, and around 1989 is when I started getting into audio. So I actually learned audio production while I was still in school. I was a graduate of UW-Whitewater, which is in the southern part of Wisconsin. And because of its location, I was an hour away from Milwaukee, an hour away from Madison, about an hour and a half away from Chicago. And in the late 80s and early 90s, I started doing studio work. And I had friends that were interns, so they kind of got me into some pretty decently named studios. And I started watching and learning and picking up all the tricks and techniques. What do you do and what don't you do? When I graduated college, I ran a professional sound and light company, Live Sound, from 91 to 2004. And for 10 years of that, we had a rig that we carried around with us that we called Bring the Studio to the Artist. So instead of the artists having to book studio time, I brought a 24-channel DAT rig, digital audio tape rig, to their location, mic'd them up, and did the recordings right there. That worked incredibly well. However, it was a lot of gear to move around and a lot of work. So around 2000, I had to make a decision. Do I want to get married and raise a family and actually provide decent income, or do I want to stay in music? At that time, I actually founded a cybersecurity firm. And for the last 23 years, been running that, and I'm now in the second phase of life. So what's happening is I'm steadily moving out of the cybersecurity realm because it is a younger man's game. And I never stopped doing audio. I was always doing contract audio or live work at nights and weekends. It was just no longer the full-time gig. So I said, you know what? I really want to get back into full-time work. The landscape has changed. It's radically different than what mm-hmm. it was when I stepped out of full-time. So I said, okay, you know what? There's a possibility I may want to teach as well. So I should probably go back and get a master's degree. You you need that piece of paper to even become an adjunct professor. So I ended up starting my master's degree in fall of 2021. And right now is spring of 2023, and then I'll be graduating. My degree is in audio technology. Surprising. Emphasis (laughs) Emphasis on studio and production. Converted one of the rooms off the house here into a treated studio and started mixing and mastering at a greater rate, more advanced rate than I used to do for people all over the world. Because what I was finding out was, especially after COVID, there are artists everywhere. There's some people making some great music, but the production and the mixing and the mastering is terrible. How has the recording industry changed, the recording of music changed as a result of the advent of digital technologies? I'll put it this way. What we used to do, we don't do anymore. And 
What I mean by that is in the olden days, you'd have a band that would come into a studio, right? So you'd book studio time, everybody would show up at the big console, the tape decks, and it was great. And people were prepared and they went in and they played the music and they cut the tracks and it was very efficient. And we went through all the mix downs and that was the process. It was really the process from the 50s to about, eh, I'd say, 1995. So what happened around the mid-90s, Mark? Well, the rise of digital audio workstations happened, right? You started to see Digidesign and Pro Tools and all this kind of stuff come out. And all of a sudden, you didn't have to be in the studio anymore. And the more that the digital age came about, the more we diverted away from that original environment where everybody was in the same room or at least they could see each other and they were playing together, to now where you could have some guy in his bedroom cutting tracks, another guy in his basement cutting tracks. They don't have to be in the same city or state or even country. To put it in a nutshell, what we used to do sounded live. It sounded like we were all there, right? We could get into it. We could understand it. And it was natural sounding. Mm-hmm. But when you started breaking it all up and people are recording stuff at different times and click tracks and all that kind of thing going on, and then the rise of auto-tune and quantization and trying to make songs absolutely perfect, it created a different sound. People don't respond to that sound the way that they used to pre-1995. Given all of this new technology, people are recording in their basements. There's been a, I guess you could call it a democratization of the recording industry, empowering individuals to record their own stuff. But How has it affected how the musicians are approaching creating music, first off, and then in terms of creating music for recording? My observation is this. Back when you had to go into the studio and you were getting charged by the hour, musicians were far more prepared. They came in, they knew their stuff, they'd hit it. If they made a mistake or two, you'd cut a second copy or dub something in, cut the tracks, and you got out. Right. Now... With digital audio, people are endlessly fiddling with stuff, constantly going back. It's like they never finish anything. I know. I feel the um, same. I've been in, <laughs> there you go. I've been in sessions where people literally almost seem like they're writing the stuff as I'm sitting there. Right. I was like, what is going on? And because you can have 95 different takes and it doesn't cost you anything, the planning has gone away. And then the secondary side of that is a lot of it is in isolation. One of the best things that you could ever do when going into studio was actually work with either a talented engineer or a producer that was there that could say, yeah, that needs to be touched up, or we should probably go this route with that, or let's try to approach the chorus in this way. All of that is gone. You mentioned it was sort of a democratization of this music. And in the sentence it is, however, there's also a flood of mediocrity that's been thrown out there. Right. And the real talented artists are having trouble rising to the top. I agree there, for sure. There's so much out there demanding our attention that it's really hard to separate what's good from what's not so good. There's a lot of records that I remember growing up that were spontaneous. I'm thinking of things like Super Sessions that Al Cooper and Mike Bloomfield did, which was, as they described, it's something that happened late at night. They all decided to get together and set up a bunch of mics and record this late night session. And it has become sort of one of the quintessential, I think, live records of all time, just because it was spontaneous in its generation. What you're saying is that 
What we're seeing now is that lack of spontaneity, that natural sound as it would come out as people were inspired to play together. I think a lot of that has gone away and we replaced it with the ability to work with anybody on the planet and there's benefits to that. Mm -hmm. But even if you were working with people you know, look at Van Halen 1 right? They basically put themselves in a room at Sunset Sound and press the record button. Right. And that album is amazing. But Van Halen was a fantastic club band. Right. First. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that energy that they have had at the time, uh, they brought that into the studio. And because they were together and they're in the same room or they're at least working together in the same environment, that energy came across. Right. Right. Add in the fact that you're in the same room and you have all the reflections going on and it sounds like you're sitting right front stage. I think you're right. We don't hear a lot of that these days. So now I want to shift over to the listener. So how has this digitization impacted the listener? How we listen to, how we perceive, how we remember or recall music? There's a concept out there of something called entrainment. Mm -hmm. Entrainment is effectively when you synchronize with something else, when two autonomous systems that operate on the same frequency synchronize with each other. And what happens is, I want you to think of if you go to a concert and you're listening to the music and you're just like, oh, this is awesome, man, and you get into it. And you start bobbing your head or tapping your foot or clapping your hands or dancing or singing or whatever. On a biological level, there's actually something happening, right? Your heart rate is changing. Your breathing rate changes. Your brain waves change. And you as the listener are actually synchronizing with the artist. Now, prior to 1995-ish, the recordings that we have are very natural sounding because they were in the same room. You take a look at some of the pictures of Bob Dylan doing his recordings. That's him and the band and like 400 microphones everywhere. They captured it all. Right. Right. And you could say what you want. Maybe Bob Dylan's not the most exciting guy. There are a lot of people that will argue he wasn't the greatest artist, but... He was really one of the first guys in modern recording to start to capture the entire room, as opposed to Elvis with one mic in the middle of the room and everybody kind of played around it. So it was this attempt to try to put the listener into the environment where the musicians were playing. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have the capability of breaking it up and one guy can be in Atlanta and the other guy can be in LA. They didn't have that possibility. So they were all together and they just recorded what sounded natural. Right. The listener hears that and goes, yeah, I dig that. I can get into sure. that. And it's literally like listening to it going, okay, I'm almost at the concert. Right, right. Now you take that room away. You take that symbiont environment away. You take away the ability to play off each other. As a musician, if you're playing and you can sync with what the guitar player is doing or the bass player is doing, right, you creates a different basically a different product. And if now the product has changed where it's all of these little pieces that are glued together, the listener doesn't get the same effect. The listener is listening to something. If it's been over-quantized and strapped to the grid and auto-tuned and compressed and gain set, all the things that we can possibly do to recording, at some point it becomes a lie. Right. right? And the listener is listening to something that's unnatural. And anything the ear hears that's unnatural, it will reject and ignore we discussed this a bit in the pre-call, but music has almost become 
a background nowadays. When I go to a party, they have something playing in the background, but no one's really listening to it. It's just playing, and it's this, as Frank Zappa, dynamo hum (laughs) going on in the background. (laughs) And you could stop somebody and say, hey, I was just listening to that. Who is that? That sounded great. Well, I have no idea. (laughs) Nobody knows what the music is. They can't identify the song. They just say, it's part of my Spotify playlist. And, of course, the algorithm goes out and finds stuff based on what they listen to. You like James Taylor. We're going to feed you a bunch of stuff that sounds exactly like James Taylor. But the effect of that is it just becomes this background noise there's no variance and i'm assuming your ears just not picking up any difference right i mean that's one of the downfalls of spotify is it's literally selecting frequency ranges of songs that match mm-hmm. but to speak to the production of it ben hunter who's actually an artist that you had on one sure. of the earliest episodes of your show i think he coined it the best way possible music has been mixed to become unoffensive right right something that yeah you can have it on in the background oh that's nice right um here's an example So uh, we talked about this in the pre-call. This is one of my favorite things to do to people. There are banner songs prior to 1995 that people can list off. You can go, you know, Dream On and Hotel California and Don't Stop Believing. You name it. Pick a genre. People will go for ages, right? Now I ask them to do the same thing for songs post-1995, and they'll struggle to come up with five or ten of them. But is that a demographic thing? I I don't think so. okay. I've tried this with multiple people from my father who's almost in his 80s to my sons and their friends as they were growing up. It was very, very interesting when I would play different songs for high school friends that were in the band with my sons, for example. Right. And I wanted to see what the difference was. So I might take It's Not the Crime by Tower of Power, right? A fantastic tune. Mm-hmm. It's right. like, literally like you're sitting next to Doc Rupka in the right. sax. Play that. <laughs> And then play a Taylor Swift song or something along those lines, something that's new, and watch the difference. Inevitably, the newer music had a, oh, that's nice type of response. But you play something like It's Not the Crime or Soul with a Capital S or something like that, something these kids have never heard before, and all of a sudden, what is this? So it wasn't an age thing, and it wasn't a demographic thing. It was basically, as the music came across, did it sound natural or did it sound like background noise? I want to jump to talk about your hypothesis and what began this whole journey of innovation. Yeah. And you gave me some background on entrainment. I've done some reading about it. Fascinating. So let's sort of shift over to that a little bit, because I think okay. this is really what we're talking about is the loss of entrainment when we're talking about new music and over overproduced sound songs and that kind of thing. You were a recording artist, you left that, you went into cybersecurity, you came back to your roots, so to speak, your true love of music and recording, but you had this idea, and I guess it started with reading about entrainment. So let's talk a little bit about entrainment. Tell me how that all came about. The cybersecurity thing, especially for the last 20 some odd years, that adds an analytical approach to a lot of things, right? So I'm one of those guys that says okay, I'm going to accept that this is how it is, but I want to know why. How does that work? Mm. And uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, I guess, I was doing a, a course called Songs of the Nations by Dan McCollum out of Vacaville, California. And he had made a DVD called God Vibrations, which spoke to how sound and the material world or matter responds. And 
that's where I first saw this concept of entrainment, right? So I was like, well, what is this thing? And I go investigating it. And entrainment, again, is when you have two autonomous systems that operate on the same frequency come in contact with each other, they will synchronize without any sort of intervention. Right. right? This was originally discovered by Christian Huygens in the 17th century. He's the inventor of the pendulum clock. Mm. And what he had was he had two identical clocks that he had made and kicks off the pendulums and leaves the room. Comes back about a half hour later and the pendulums are in sync. And first time he's ever seen anything like this. And it's hilarious. I read an article about how he went through his process to test this. And his first instinct was that the place was haunted. Right, <laughs> of course. Something had gone in and changed yeah. it. But being a little bit more of a mechanical guy, he's like, there's something going on here. And he's the one who really tapped it and actually coined the term entrainment. And it was on a mechanical level. So as long as there was some sort of medium between the two clocks, they would synchronize. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and entrainment is widely accepted. It's in the mechanical world. It's in the biological world. It's in the social sciences. It's everywhere. So what we start to see is it is natural for us to want to synchronize with something. In fact, we do it and don't even know it. If you walk down the street, your right hand goes out the same time your left foot does. Your left hand goes out the same time your right foot does. You're not thinking of doing that. It's just natural, right? Interbody entrainment. The very interesting thing was that until about 2000, nobody really applied this concept of entrainment to music. And in 2004, a guy named Martin Clayton and a whole bunch of other folks from Durham University started investigating entrainment in music, right? And they coined the term interpersonal musical entrainment. They're really describing what happens when people deal with music that they hear and what happens underneath it's under the hood if you will right they actually called it ethnomusicology so they were across all sorts of genres of music and different parts of the countries and it was amazing after you read the first document that they did which was i think about like 85 pages it was just a massive writing that they put out there since then i just looked it up because i cite it in my thesis it's been cited like 15 or 1600 times right. in the last 20 years. And they basically said, when you have an artist playing music, his audience will synchronize to the feelings and rhythms that he's putting out there. And the music is the medium. Sure. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Just so I get my head around this whole idea of entrainment, it happens with mechanical objects, it happens with people, it happens in the relationship between the artist who's playing live in front of the audience, but does it apply to things like language, for example? So if you have a bunch of people in the room together and they're having a conversation, they spend a lot of time together, I've noticed this just anecdotally, that all of a sudden the way they talk becomes similar. The language, the words, the phraseology that they use becomes similar. And then it goes away when they move from one group to another. So was that entrainment too? Sure. Yeah. The cadence of how they speak definitely will change. There are entrainment in the social sciences is absolutely astounding as far as how much do we learn from our environment? How much do we mimic it? How much is happening underneath? And what you're describing in social interactions 
definitely happens. There's a term they call chameleon effect that was describing what you're talking about there. When somebody starts speaking with their hands or nodding their head as they talk, Mm -hmm. you'll actually parrot it. Right, right. Unconsciously, you'll start nodding your head. In fact, there's a sales technique. When I came out of college, I did a little insurance sales. And one of the sales techniques was if I wanted you to agree with something, as I spoke about it, I was nodding my head and you'd start naturally nodding your head (laughs) as well. Nodding your head, sure. And it's real difficult to say, no, I don't want that if you're not in your head. But in effect, entrainment was going on at that point. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about the conductor because the reading I did in the background said originally thought entrainment was carried through the air. And then they Mm -hmm. later heard that it was, no, it's actually the objects. Using your example of the two clocks, it wasn't the fact that one clock was somehow speaking to the other or that the conductor was the air itself, but it was the surfaces. So you really had to have the clocks in the same location, and it was the sound bouncing off the surfaces. Is that correct? So in the mechanical world, there had to be some sort of commonality between them something how they could communicate and obviously since a machine can't listen it had to have some sort of feedback to it so yeah if they were on the same table table surface allowed them to communicate to each other right so the vibrations through the surfaces and things like that exactly but when you start getting into the social sciences and the music stuff at that point then language and cadence and rhythms and notes and frequencies that becomes your medium because we can hear. And that is a way that we can intake data mm-hmm. and basically deal with it. Right. Okay. So you started reading about entrainment. You have this background mm-hmm. in the music business and the recording business. Was that the proverbial light bulb for you? You know, in the middle of one of my courses in the master's degree, something went off and I made this leap of faith, if you will. There's a discussion we were having that said, why is new music bad and old music was good? Mm-hmm. Right? That's really where it started. Right, right. And I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, it's not like all of a sudden people forgot music theory and they, they, they forgot how to write and they forgot how to make a point and artists fell off the planet. It's not the case. I mean, no. something else had to happen. We got all of this music that's coming out. And yes, granted, a lot of it is untrained and it's very rough and it is what it is. The decent artists didn't go away. So what's happened? What's going on? And started comparing a lot like I'm sure you did after we had our original discussion. Absolutely, I you have. You go back to your old music, and you're like, okay, I listen to this, and I listen to it now. What am I hearing? And it struck me that the albums that I was pulling up, and I think the first one I did this was I took the Journey Escape album. And I played that thing. I said, all right, what do we got here? And you listen into that and you're like, okay, that sounds like I'm second row or that sounds like I'm sitting right in the middle of the band. And then I fire up something new, like Bruno Mars or something like that. And I'm going, it's cool, but it sounds distant, if you will. It sounds, Mm -hmm. it didn't grab me. And I'm like, what is going on here? Why am I not connecting this? Because Bruno Mars, I mean, Arguably, incredibly talented individual. Absolutely. I've seen him live. He's great. I watched him on the Super Bowl. And this is really what it kind of harkened back to. I'm like, wait a minute. That Super Bowl performance he did, that was cool. Right. Why does his recordings not give me the same feeling? Right. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of artists 
that I've seen live. And I go, oh, that's amazing. You can remember a concert from 10 years ago, but you couldn't tell you which album's out today. And you're like, oh, okay, fantastic. But you might go see the artist again and go, wow, it was amazing. What's the difference? The older artists kind of synced up to them. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to know more. And partially Spotify playlists, I think, are the cause of this. But we used to put on an album and play the whole record. Hey, listen to all of the songs. Yeah, yeah. Now it's you pick and choose and it's a smorgasbord. And you're taking the best and whatever Spotify recommends to you, which mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't give you the chance to say, what is the, the artist trying to say? And theme albums like Operation Mindcrime by Queens, you know, that thing told a story. Right. You can't do that now. I said, there had to be something going on. What was the difference? And I narrowed it down to around that mid-90s era. Mm-hmm. Nirvana and those guys were like the last to start doing it the old way and moving into the new way. You know, smells like teen spirit and things like that. And you know, that's where you started to see it change. And then as I started moving into the 2000s, it was like very interesting. What's going on? And it dawned on me that, you know what? I didn't have digital audio recording in the late 80s. Right. right? We were doing stuff through console and to 24 or 16 track tape. And then we would do bounce downs. And I was using a Trident ADB at the Chicago studio I was working at. And I was like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's got a condenser microphone and a USB mic and Pro Tools or GarageBand and off they go. Right. And I was like, the process changed. Okay. So we're doing things differently than we used to. We're recording differently. The environment's different. What is missing? And it dawned on me that because the production is different, something is interfering with this entrainment. And as I thought about that, I'm like, oh my gosh, here's a perfect example. Here's a perfect live example. And this one really kind of drives home the difference in production. We talked a little bit, you go out and you see a live band and that band is awesome. Let's say it's a great group and it's all original music and it's played very well, right? So we go out to the club and that band is playing and they're incredible and the mix is good and you're like, oh, this is fantastic. And people are bobbing their heads and they're dancing and they're getting into it and they're hooting and hollering and they're like, yeah, this is great, right? And they come away and they remember that band we saw at Club ABC? Sure. Yeah, I love that group. Now, same group. Second night, same band playing the same songs, but now the mix is terrible, mm-hmm. right? Drum and bass is too low. The guitars are too loud. The singer is kind of nasally. Keyboards are kind of screechy. And what is the audience reaction? This band stinks. <laughs> what's, yeah, what's the difference? The difference was the production. The mix interfered with the entrainment of the artist and the listener. Right. And at that point, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes sense. Because we've changed the way we do the recordings, we've lost that sync. Mm-hmm. Right. And the more he started to dig into it, the more I started seeing, wait a minute, this isn't just music, right? It's happened in movies. Mm-hmm. So check this out. Prior to the mid 90s, you know, if I told you to sing the Star Wars theme, could you do it? Sure. Most everybody can get sure. that. Yeah. Right? Indiana Jones. Pretty much the same song. Pretty much the same song, yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing is there's been like 25 Marvel movies. Can you sing any of those? Oh, absolutely not. You can't. And again, this was one of the things that we had studied in film scoring during the master's degree was to compare the 
soundtracks of old to the soundtracks of new. Mm-hmm. You know, how did John Williams and Hans Zimmer and Danny Elfman and those cats, how did they do stuff? And then how did it change? And it changed from really moving melodies and punctuations, you know, staccato, legato, and the different use of instruments to a more of a synthetic pad sound going on in the background. And unfortunately, there's a slight nefariousness to it where the music was made to be just slightly recognizable but not so much that it took away from the movie. Right? You go and watch epic Star Wars battle scenes, even of some of the newer ones, and you hear, you know, when yep. the good guys are playing, and when the bad guys are playing. <laughs> and it, it, it set the tone. Ah, good guys, bad guys. Right. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. But now, you know, you're like, okay, I'm watching one of the Marvel movies, and now I hear a slight snippet from Captain America under a Pepsi commercial and I see a little star and a shield and oh I gotta put those together. And it's been done so that it doesn't distract from the movie, but it's still used in other marketing. It's been designed for cross marketing platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes me ill, right? Because it <laughs> takes away from the art. Right. But right. it is what it is, right? Yeah. I mean it's a welcome welcome to the new world. Yeah. Well, you know, so many thoughts are going through my head as you've been talking. And I was thinking the records that I like the best are live records. They always have been. When I really think back on it, I think, oh, geez, I can pick out my favorite records, and almost every one of them is a live record. Little Feet's Waiting for Columbus, John Mayall's Jazz Blues Fusion. You know, it's a raw, stripped-down sound, but I think what I like about it is I can hear every instrument distinctly. Mm -hmm. I can pick out every single instrument. And of course, in Waiting for Columbus, you mentioned the Tower of Power. They played on that record. There were so many people on that stage, and yet... You can hear every solo clearly. If you're a fan of the sax or the trumpet or Sam Clayton's percussion work, you can pick it out. And I don't think you can do that with a lot of music these days. And the other concern I have is that what I hear in the studio or on the records nowadays almost can't be produced live. They can't reproduce that sound because they've over-engineered the record. And so when you see them live, it's a bit of a disappointment. (laughs) Exactly. Because they're trying Uh, to play what they recorded, but they can't do it. Exactly. And it's sad because this strive for perfection, the modern pop sound, the technique for modern pop vocals is literally go word by word and change the game Mm -hmm. before you do anything. Could you imagine what would happen if you went to... Etta James voice and did that. Right. It's like sacrilege. Yet it's the modern accepted practice right now. If you listen to the original recordings by Glenn Miller on Sing, 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 the tempo moves between about 110 to as high as 124. It goes back and forth. I would say Glenn Miller's orchestra couldn't play. No. no. But if you quantize that, it wouldn't feel the same. Not the same way. And it's why people are drawn to the live experience. And particularly in a post-COVID world, I know, certainly for myself and many other people I know, getting out there and hearing music live now is kind of what they want to do. I mean, it because, and, I, and again, listening to you, it, I think it's because they miss that entrainment, that connection with the yes. music. You can listen to the records, as lots of people have been doing during this COVID period, But it's not the same as getting out there and seeing them play live. I've gone to probably 10 shows last summer just to get that experience, that connection with the artist. And consequently, actually, I find the connection stronger. And maybe it's because 
number one, the artists haven't been out there playing live, so it's nice for them to have that connection. And I want to talk a little about how, once we get into talking about the system that you've designed based on this entrainment theory, how that impacts the artists themselves and the music that they're making and hearing themselves differently, perhaps, than they had in the past. So you've got this entrainment theory, you've read this, you said, look, this is something I realize now, this is something that's missing. We've lost this entrainment. So you've got this idea, you've got this theory, right? How did you begin to test your hypothesis? Well, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't deluding myself. Because you can talk yourself into anything. Rationalization is the second most powerful human emotion. (laughs) And I was like, you know, if I think my own thoughts enough, eventually I'll even believe it. So I wanted to start asking people, is what I'm perceiving correct? And without a doubt, it came back, yeah, there's a difference. And there's something else going on. And my next step was, there's got to be a way to fix this. There's got to be a way to use modern techniques and get that pre-95 sound, that vintage sound. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we do that? And I listened to a lot of recordings, and the loudness wars really didn't help, because the more that you you crank up a song for its loudness when you master it, the less depth you get. Right. So as that happened, it became very two-dimensional. A lot of songs have great stereo, but they got no depth to them. Mm -hmm. So my goal was I wanted to create a mixing method that would be genre and DAW agnostic that you could use over and over again that would automatically create depth and width and height in the mix. Create what is missing from those old days and put it into new music with the whole hope of fostering that interpersonal musical entrainment. Right. right? So my goal was to create this process that I could take these multi-track recordings and the issues that we've all talked about here, put them together, but make it sound like they're all in the same listening environment and give the artist the sound that the listener would pick up. And I can take that listener, I can say, you know what, you're in the front row or you're on stage or you're 50 feet back or you're 100 feet back. I wanted to do that and make it so that it was a process or a methodology or a framework that could be used over and over again. Right. Right. Replicable. If you go out and... If you go out on YouTube or any courses out there, I mean, it's like a dark art as far as, you know, how do you, how do you people get depth in your mix, right? And I have seen some really stupid stuff that I was like, I don't even know what you're thinking about. But, you know, the biggest thing is that while everybody has these best intentions, at no point did I ever find a course or a process or anything like that said, do this, start here, here's your result. This is what it's going to be each time you do it. Right. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. And the process is built around taking all the multi-tracks and recreating the track processing that we used to do. So all the tracks go to submixes, which is the same effect as I record 16 tracks of drums and do a mm-hmm. two-track bounce down. And then I wanted to send them through a listening environment. So the process that we came up with effectively sends all of this, the music through a listening environment that I'm creating. So I have depth. So the things that are in the back of the room sound like they're in the back of the room. Things that are in the front of the room or the middle sound like they're there. And right, left, and center spacing as if the band was on stage and you're listening to it. Right. right? That's what this process creates. And I was like, well, this is very neat. And I said, I want to try it on people. And I actually started unleashing it on some clients. And they didn't know what I was doing to it. And they came back and said, this sounds great. 
like, this sounds really interesting. He said, it sounds like I'm on stage. And I was like, that was my goal. And then I said, here, listen to this version of it. And I made the room a little bit bigger and I changed some of the timings. I said, well, it sounds like I'm listening to the band and I'm in the front row. Right. Like right on. Now listen to this version of it. He's like, it sounds like I'm in the back of the auditorium. I'm like, good. Okay. That's what I wanted. I was like, again, am I diluting myself? Let's test this. So I started training other engineers on the predecessor to this. The method is called the four bus mixing method, but it started out with three buses. I want to stop you here just for our listeners because not everybody has that technical knowledge. What is a bus? When you say A a three bus system, Four bus system. Okay, when you're working with your digital audio workstation, a bus is a grouping of tracks. Okay. All right. And the four bus system uses uh, compression tracks, reverb tracks, delay tracks, and height tracks. Right. Or compression bus, height bus, delay bus, reverb bus. Gotcha. And what the design is basically to recreate a room, right? These buses mathematically actually relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a series of rules that we set up that as long as you stay within parameters, everything works great. Because when we hear things, our hearing is designed for a primary purpose of location, right? If we're right. standing in Makes the kitchen sense. and I throw a pot down on the floor, you don't look at me. Your instant reaction is to look at where that sound where came sound from. Came from. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And we judge positioning of sound by one of three aspects, how loud it is, how crisp it is, and how bright it is. Right. Right. So in other words, if you and I are in a church and I clap my hands and we're right next to each other, that clap sounds very bright. It's very loud. Mm -hmm. It's very crisp. Right. Using audio terms, it's got a high SPL. A lot of the transient is available and the high frequencies are perceptible. Okay. Now, if you stayed at the back of the church and I go to the front of the church and I clap my hands, it's quieter. It's kind of muted. It's kind of dull. Right. Using audio terms, lower SPL, reduced transients, high frequency roll off. Okay. Right. So, those bus systems are designed to recreate the environment or the listening environment that I want the user to have. Right. So it's almost like a stage designer, for example, in in live theater Mm -hmm. production that's designing for the theater is thinking about all of these things, positioning of people. What's it going to sound like if the actor is standing at the back or behind something, behind a screen, for example? So same sort of principles, but you're doing this in advance. You're going, how do you want this to sound? Is this how it all starts? I mean, how would you like this to sound? Do you want to sound right. like you're playing outdoors? Do you want to sound like you're playing in a specific venue like Massey Hall or Albert Hall in London? And so there's a visual component, I think, too, to this as well, at least conceptually visual. Exactly. The first step in the process is you build a tic-tac-toe grid, okay. a nine-space grid that represents the front of the stage, the middle of the stage, the back of the stage, and the right, center, and left sides. And then you put your parts in it. All right, all right, kick drum, back center. Overhead right goes in the back right. Overhead left, back left. Guitar one, I'm going to put him in the middle of the stage on the left-hand side. And guitar two, I'm going to put him on the middle of the stage on the right-hand side. And the lead vocalist, he's going to be in the center in the front. And this harmonica player, I'm going to stick him on the front off on the left. Right, And it's literally like you would set him up on a stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, blocking. (laughs) 
blocks exactly yeah. blocking right yeah. and the, like i said the original method was three buses and i trained 10 other engineers on how to do this right so recreate the method give me your feedback and every single one of them came back and said this is absolutely astounding mm. the stuff i've been messing with for six months i got it fixed inside of two hours right now i can create the sound where if I wanted to be in a bigger room, I just changed a couple settings and I'm at Albert Hall. But if I change a couple other settings and bring them down, I'm at a seaside shanty in Ireland. This is great. Right. Wow. And, and I said, well, okay, good. So I'm not deluding myself. And I said, well, let's do some market research as I was doing this because I wanted to teach the method to A, figure out if I had talked myself into something that was legitimate or not, mm -hmm. because there's always a question. If you came across something that's never been done before, it's because of one of two reasons. Either A, it was difficult, or B, it was stupid. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see which one I was yeah. falling on. Right. And, and it turned out, luckily, it was number one. And every single one of these guys, I was charging them for the time. And it took longer and longer the more I put into the system. Mm. And by the time I finished with the 10th guy, every single one of them came back and said, you're not charging enough. Right. I was like, okay, market research is now setting me a price where these people say this is valuable and I would pay for this. It's one thing to say nice things. It's another thing to actually write a check. Right. And I'm like, okay, the more people are into that, the more validation I'm getting that this actually works. Mm -hmm. So throughout the master's degree, I started researching psychoacoustics and started really getting into what was it that was missing between the old recordings and the new recordings? And a lot of it is reflections, right? And there are certain psychoacoustic techniques that, that we've added into the four bus system that recreates things bouncing around the room. There are techniques in the process that actually leverage something called the precedence effect, where if a guitar is on the left-hand side of the stage and I'm mixing it and I just turn it to the left, okay, it sounds like it's on the left. However, in a live environment, if you close your right ear, your left ear hears that amp, but then you close your left ear and your right ear hears it a little differently. Right. Right. So I was like, well, that's very interesting because the right ear is going to hear it a little darker. It's actually going to be a little time delayed. Different frequencies are going to come through on the right ear than they do on the left. Mm -hmm. Right. And the left ear is going to be very, very sharp. So some of the techniques that I created to support this, not only would pan the instrument to the left, but now depending on what I did between the two different multi-takes of the track, I could literally rotate that amp on stage. And if I took all the panning out, it still sounded like it was on the left-hand side. So you know, the advanced work that we did on the four bus method effectively took us into that psychoacoustic realm where we were recreating what was naturally lost because of the multi-tracking in the digital age, we had become so accustomed to pre-95. This concludes part one of Entrainments and the Power of Sound with my guest, Tom Powers. Join us for part two of this episode on the next installment of The Many Faces of Innovation, where Tom and I discuss the far-reaching implications of his work for what it's worth. Doctor